0: The great delusion that constantly assaults the human race, both in the past and in the present, is the idea that we can be accepted by or acceptable to or considered good and righteous in the eyes of God by anything other than grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, who made his dwelling among us, who lived a perfect, righteous, law fulfilling life, the life that we require if we are going to be righteous in the sight of God. Jesus, who voluntarily laid down his life and took on himself the penalty for our sin. Jesus, who was buried. Jesus, who is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, he is our Lord, he is our Savior, and it is through him and him alone that anyone can receive grace. And yet, and yet, all over the world, from the earliest times until now, the peoples have made, have shaped, have crafted gods in their own image. Gods that can be bought gods that can be paid for with good deeds or with acts of devotion, gods that allow us to elevate our own worth, our own value as we contribute our part. For some, it's making pilgrimages to holy sites. For some, it's fasting for 40 days. For some, it's sitting in ashes for weeks, whatever it is. A vast multitude of the world's people ascribe to this idea. If I do things that I think will please the gods, they will bestow favors upon me. They will, in a sense, owe me for everything that I have given to them. But it's not just the adherence to major world religions that fall for this delusion, but also the individual as vast numbers of people find it appropriate to label themselves spiritual believing that deep down they are good people and that God, whoever, whatever he, she, or it would, is, would never turn away a good person. If I try to tell the truth, if I keep from stealing, if I do other good things, then God and I are good, right? And even if I do lie, or even if I do steal, or even if I do gossip, God, whoever he, she, or it is, knows my heart, and my heart is good. Let me just tell you, spiritual is just another term for I am my own boss. I am my own God. Uh, And any higher power that exists will agree with me, will agree with what I deem to be right and good, because I know best And we see so much spiritual in this world. So many people ascribing this title to themselves. I'm spiritual because no one, no one on their own cares to believe that a God exists who demands our obedience, who demands that we submit our lives to him, who demands that we repent and turn to him in faith. That we turn from our sins and turn to him in faith. For many, this is a thoroughly offensive concept and so we settle on the term spiritual. And all of these are the delusions of a deceptive heart. And the Lord made this clear when he said through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There is no other way, just to be clear, there is no other way to enter the kingdom of heaven than by grace through faith in the Lord and King of the kingdom, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But not only are major religions and their practices and spiritual people of our day all deceiving and deluding themselves, but when we get to our text this morning, we see that even the Jews... God's chosen people in the days of Jesus had also deceived themselves in terms of their standing before God, which is why they were so shocked when John the Baptist bursts onto the scene and preaches, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ethnic Jews believed generally that they didn't have to repent. Repentance And the symbol of water baptism were practices reserved for those Gentiles who were converting out of pagan religions and into Judaism. They were called to repent of their association with the evils of the vile and disgusting and filthy Gentile world and undergo a baptism that was symbolic of their cleansing themselves of the filth that had caked on them through their life in the world. But here comes John, and he arrives and calls for repentance. And in context, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews. And this was a shock to the system for the religious leaders, many of whom loved to declare things like, God loves Israel alone of all the nations. And many of these religious leaders taught that a Jew, an ethnic Jew, simply had to wait for and accept the kingdom. After all, they are God's chosen people. They are his holy people, his nation of priests, the people for his own possession. The scriptures are clear. God had bound himself to Israel in a covenant. And for that reason, they were, in their own minds, every single ethnic Jew destined for the coming kingdom by virtue of their ethnic heritage. This is what they believed. These same leaders also taught that Abraham himself sat waiting and watching outside the gates of hell to prevent even the most wicked of Jews from entering in, to ensure that every single Jew participated in the kingdom. And if you go right back to the early Christian apologists, one named Justin Martyr, in one of his works, he's arguing uh, with a Jewish, uh, a, a follower of the Jewish religion at that point. And he quotes his opponent as saying this, they who are of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, meaning ethnic Jews, will, even if they are sinners, unbelieving and disobedient to God, share in his eternal kingdom. And so you see, the Jews of the day trusted in their ethnic lineage. So while some today trust in their deeds and their sacrifices to their gods, while some of us trust in our, what we believe to be, inherent goodness, the Jews of Jesus' day trusted in their ethnic lineage. They trusted in the fact that their bloodlines were Jewish, that they could trace their family tree all the way back to Abraham. Like so many of us today, they place their trust in the wrong things. Trust is misplaced when it is set upon observing religious rituals in the hopes of appeasing or satisfying God or the gods. Trust is misplaced when it's fixed upon our own vague sense of goodness or self-worth. And trust is misplaced when it rests on ethnic heritage. If anyone, Jew or Gentile, is to be right with, acceptable to, saved by, forgiven by God, their trust must be fully and completely placed in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So John bursts on the scene, preparing the way for the king, shattering, laboring to shatter the old foundations upon which Jews trusted, calling them to repent, which is, as we learned last week, a turning from their old allegiances and a turning to the coming king for salvation because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But John also reveals in our text this morning another frightening and startling truth. Not only is the kingdom of heaven at hand, but damnation and judgment are closer now than ever before for everyone who refuses to repent and bow their knee to the king, Jesus Christ. While the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John also makes it clear that for those who refuse to repent, repent, drop your eyes to verse 10 in our text, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. The judgment of God is near. And so as John preaches, he starts off in verse 5 by telling us the response of the common people. The response of the common people in verse 5. Look at it. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to them. The text tells us that there were vast numbers of people going out to hear John's message of repentance. The popular reaction to John's wilderness preaching was quite stunning. Jerusalem, all Judea, and those in the region all around the Jordan went out to him. You have to remember, right? The people's expectation and anticipation of Elijah's reappearance, that coupled with the centuries-long prophetic drought led the people out to see John. A prophet? After all this time, a prophet has has arisen? But not only did the people simply go out to John, look at what it says in verse 6. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John called upon Jews to be baptized. Not Gentile converts to Judaism, but Jews themselves. Jews of the day tended to think that the Gentiles were the main problem. And that the Lord would arrive, the Messiah would arrive, and he would deal with the Gentiles because they were the issue. The Messiah's arrival would focus on the liberation of Israel from Gentiles and the oppressive ways of the Gentiles toward the Jews. But John here, in calling for Jewish peoples to undergo baptism, declares quite clearly that the problem is not Gentiles. The problem is sin. The Jews, along with the Gentiles, were wildly unprepared for the arrival of King Jesus. The Jews were, along with the Gentiles, unclean and in need of repentance to put off sin, to leave behind the old life, to turn to new life with the Lord. And this has always been the message of the prophets. In Israel, you must return to the Lord. That's the consistent prophetic message Every prophet came speaking. Return to the Lord. Your ways are wicked. Your deeds are sinful. Turn away from them. Come back to the Lord. He is gracious, long-suffering, patient, wonderful. He will forgive. He stands with open arms waiting for you to repent. And when John arrives, he picks up where the prophets had left off. Only this time, the Lord, the King of Israel, the Messiah was at hand. And amazingly, amazingly, the average Jew responded to John's call by getting baptized. They recognized that they must also prepare for the arrival of the Lord. And as they were baptized, look at what they did. They confessed their sin. They made public acknowledgement of their sin. Now that's a difficult thing to do, make public acknowledgement of our sin. We read in Acts 19 of another group When the fear of the Lord fell upon the residents of Ephesus, many of them who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Listen, don't ever let anyone try to tell you that repentance is not a costly act. It is. It's a very costly act. To publicly confess our sin, to confess our sin to the Lord, to confess our sin to one another, and to live out acts that prove that our repentance is real. These are all difficult acts. In the case of the Ephesians, they burned all the books that once held such authority in their lives and then submitted themselves to Christ's words in their place. But it was a financial, that had a financial impact on them. Repentance is costly. But not only did the average Jew come to hear John, but also the religious leaders of the day arrived on the scene as well. This is the next part that John tells us, that the Jewish leaders arrived. The average Jew confessed their sins and were baptized, but the crowds, again, were not the only ones who showed up to see what John was doing. The religious leaders meaning the Pharisees and the Sadducees came as well. So on the one hand, you have the repentant regular folk, and on the other, here comes the hypocritical religious leader. And John's response to the two groups is actually quite a contrast. He baptized the repentant, and he chastised the hypocrite. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So here, listen to that. John, in full hearing of all who had come to him for baptism, openly lays into the religious leaders, preaching a rather offensive sermon against them. John had no sympathy, no sympathy for hypocritical leaders who crush and abuse their people in order to feed their pride, feed their arrogance, and feed their guilt or greed, all the while claiming to speak for or be anointed by the Lord. And these types, you will see as we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, will be consistently rebuked, will be consistently preached against, will be consistently torn down in the public eye by John the Baptist, by Jesus, by the disciples... But even so, don't read this section of text without recognizing that John, in preaching such tough words to the Pharisees, was revealing God's grace even for the hypocrite should they repent. John, in warning the religious leaders of the doom that will overtake them if they refuse to repent and believe, is committing a gracious act to them. It's only culture's words that lead us to view straight, direct, and clear preaching about the future of the unrepentant as a negative and harmful thing. It is not. Neither Jesus nor John had any qualms about such preaching. It is an act of grace to let people know that if they do not repent, judgment is near. And who were these religious leaders that John rebuked so harshly? They were the Pharisees. You see that, right, in, uh, in verse 7. First is the Pharisees. These would have been the conservatives of the day, the strict, strict fundamentalists of the day, following everything in the Old Testament right down to the jot and the tittle, down to the letter, but they went even further than that. In order to ensure that neither they nor the people disobeyed God's law, they crafted rules around the law that acted kind of like a boundary around the law. That way, if someone broke one of the boundaries, they hadn't actually broken the law of God. The problem was that over time, the boundaries became as important as the laws themselves. And so regular people found themselves burdened not simply by following god's good and gracious and wonderful law but they found themselves burdened by a whole bunch of man-made laws that surrounded the laws that the jews said were just as important the religious leaders said were just as important but as we will see throughout the gospel of matthew those pharisees who put on a good face they were nothing more than hypocrites some of them were nothing more than hypocrites Then there were also the Sadducees. The Sadducees would have been the more liberal Jews of the day. They were the ones who held the seats of power in the Jewish high council. These are the ones who denied cardinal theological doctrines like the resurrection and the immortality of the soul. These two, as we will see walking through the Gospel of Matthew, were also hypocrites so, to make, bring it into the modern day, the Pharisees would have been the small, super-fundamental, girls-can't-wear-pants, King James-only fundamentalist types. And the Sadducees would have been the more powerful, liberal, united church types. And so then John, looking at them, proclaims a message to them. The first thing he says in verse 6, as he watches them arrive, looks them straight in the eye, is this, you brood of vipers now i've always been taught that if you hope to win friends and influence people you don't start your communications with people by calling them a brood of vipers but john in essence calls them evil people imagine that will you the religious leaders those who are supposed to lead god's people in god's truth are in the eyes of john the baptist at this moment nothing more than evil people And this imagery would be reiterated by Jesus in his dealings with them as well. We will see a couple more times when Jesus looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and says, you brood of vipers, later on. The words and the deeds of the religious leaders were far from leading to life, but were instead dripping with deadly poison. Now, we don't actually know if these leaders came to submit themselves to John's baptism out of respect for his role as a prophet. Because we do know this. John the Baptist was very well received by the people, and the people of Israel looked up to him. He's actually written about uh, by Jewish historians outside of the Bible, one named Josephus, who tells us about John in an extra-biblical source. Here's what he says. Some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and was a very just punishment for what he did against John called the Baptist or the Dipper. For Herod had him killed, although he was a good man, and had urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue, both as to justice toward one another and reverence towards God, and having done so, joined together in washing, for immersion in water, it was clear to him, could not be used for the forgiveness of sins, but as a sanctification of the body, and only if the soul was already thoroughly purified by right actions. And when others massed about him, for they were very greatly moved by his words, Herod, who feared that such strong influence over the people might carry to a revolt, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, believed it much better to move now than later have it raise a rebellion and engage him in actions he would regret. And so John, out of Herod's suspiciousness, was sent in chains to Macarius, the fort previously mentioned, and there put to death. But it was the opinion of the Jews that out of retribution for John, God willed the destruction of the army so as to afflict Herod. Now, Josephus' theology is way off, but this particular section of text is just to declare to you that the people were wildly... They loved John. They loved John so much that Herod feared his influence over the people because the people were ready to do anything and everything John said because they respected him that much. And so if the religious leaders had come out of respect for John's prophetic call and they were going to submit themselves to his baptism, John perceived their hypocrisy. He knew that they were coming not because they were truly repentant, but were in fact simply continuing in their regular pattern of trying to perform works that win the favor, secure the favor and the approval of God. If in their minds John were in fact a prophet and he was calling people to repentance like the prophets before him and this prophet was calling people to be baptized, then they should take part as well. Perhaps God was about to mete out some sort of punishment upon the people of Israel for their disobedience, which usually happens when a prophet arises. And these religious leaders would like to be exempt from it. And so if there is some work or some deed that they could do to find themselves exempt from a regional dispensation of God's judgment, then they would submit themselves to it. Not out of true repentance, but out of self-protectionism. But John had so much more in mind when he spoke to them. It wasn't that some regional judgment was coming, but that damnation itself and judgment itself are near and will eventually overtake anyone and everyone who refuses to repent. And so John, seeing the religious leaders approaching him, called out to them with an impassioned and urgent plea, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see that in verse 8. Don't come out to this baptism simply to take part in some external ritual that you think will secure God's blessing and favor to you. No. Truly repent. Really repent. Truly take stock of your heart and recognize who you are before God. You are a sinner. You are a hypocrite. You are in desperate need of God's grace. Truly repent. Turn from your sin. Turn towards God in faith. That's what repentance is. It is the leaving behind of the old ways, as we learned last week. It is the turning of the entire person from sin to God in obedience to the good news of Jesus Christ. And we learned last week, remember, that repentance includes acknowledging your sin, being sorrowful over your sin, confessing your sin to the Lord, hating your sin, and again, turning from it. But John knows that there is a type of repentance that is not true repentance, When people confess with their mouths, but their hearts aren't truly changed. And if you want to know if someone has truly repented, look at their lives. Look at the fruit of their lives. If you want to know if you have truly repented, look at the fruit of your life. There are so many who claim to love Jesus and appreciate Jesus, but whose lives tell a different story. While paying lip service to Christ. Their lives reveal that they are dedicated to and devoted to chasing after and appeasing their own selfish desires. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were no different. True repentance, a true turning to Jesus, will reveal itself in a changed life. Now, just to be clear, it doesn't all happen at once. And I am not saying that you will ever reach any level of perfection in this life. However, the truly repentant will, in ever-increasing measure, grow up into the image of Christ. We will love what he loves, increasingly love what he loves. We will increasingly hate what he hates. We will hate our sin. We will wish to be rid of it once and for all. And when we do fall into sin, we will run to him for mercy and trust that he remains true to his word. He forgives. For all of us who with our lips claim to love Jesus, have you truly repented? Are you growing in Christ likeness? Are you bearing fruit that keeps that is in keeping with your profession? Are your lifestyle, practices, words, deeds and the rest reflective of your profession of love for Jesus Christ? For all who truly, for all who would truly repent, the Holy Spirit lives in us and changes us inwardly and that inward change will reveal itself in our outward lives of God-glorifying conduct. So John continues his impassioned plea with these religious leaders, continuing on saying, do not presume to say to yourselves, in verse nine, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So, you remember what we started off with, right? The religious leaders throughout the Gospels believed that the Jews were saved simply because they were Jews. And they continue, continually returned to this worldly confidence as the basis for their right standing before God. We are the children of Abraham, they'd say, meaning, we are exempt from any eternal judgment. Because God visited Abraham way back in Genesis and made promises to him that we are the beneficiaries of. For example, in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, "'Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations.'" I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so the Jews of John's day really clung to that phrase, and your offspring after you, thinking that this meant that they were secure, that the Lord was quite emphatic about the establishment of a covenant between Abraham and his offspring or descendants throughout their generations that God promised to be their God was the foundation upon which Israel's religious leaders built their arrogant assumption that they alone were the nation or the people that God loved or loves. While it is wonderfully true that God loves Israel, throughout the Old Testament and into the New, it is also true that repentance, faith, and obedience were and are the Jews' part in the covenant. They were God's people, and they were supposed to reveal that reality by, and by living as God commanded, and thereby being a light to the nations, calling the entire world, to see the wonders, to see the glory, to see the magnificence of their God, who is not simply Israel's God, but is in fact the God of the entire universe. Nevertheless, without anything remotely resembling true repentance, these religious leaders clung to what they believed to be promises made by God to Abraham and misinterpreted them as, thinking, as, as saying that they would escape the judgment of God simply as a result of their being descendants of Abraham. And they brought this very concept up later in a confrontation with Jesus in chapter, John chapter 8, verse 39, when they said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus, consistent with the preaching of John the Baptist, replied in eight, John eight thirty nine to 40, If you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And then verse 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Meaning, You who claim to be the children of Abraham, and you might very well be, ethnically speaking, do not reflect him in any way. Abraham loved the Lord. Abraham trusted the Lord. Abraham obeyed the Lord. Abraham Abraham organized the entirety of his life around the exaltation of the Lord. But the religious leaders that came to John that day did none of this. Instead, they were proud, power-hungry, arrogant hypocrites, hell-bent on eliminating anyone they perceived as a threat to their lofty positions of authority. Far from Abraham, Jesus said, these things are the domain of the devil. No one, so when we come down to it, no one, whether Jew or Gentile, can be saved or forgiven by any worldly confidence. For the Jews, their worldly confidence was physical descent from Abraham. For you, it might be a trust in your own goodness. But no matter what, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how good I think I am, the truth is we are not. I am not. There is only one who is good, and that is Jesus. It is self-deception to think that we are righteous before God just based on our own. And we all know it, don't we? We all know who we are. And as we sit in our homes in isolation, as we sit in our homes kind of quarantined, spending more time with our own thoughts and in our own heads, we know who we are. We've got this figured out. We know that we are not righteous and that we are not good. We know what we think. We know that what we hope for sometimes. We know how we think about other people sometimes. But there is good news. If anyone would be saved... Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But for all who trust in worldly things, for the religious leaders, John destroys the foundation of their confidence. Religious leaders, John says, said, you think you are so very special because you are the descendants of Abraham. Well, let me tell you that you are not In fact, John said, God could have and is able right now to make these stones into children of Abraham. That ought to tell you how special you are, that these rocks could take your place if God so wanted it to be so. What a shot to the pride of the religious leaders, right? They weren't as special as they had assumed. God can make children for Abraham out of a stone, so don't feel so good about yourself. The religious leaders had forgotten that God did not choose to set his affection on Israel because of any inherent specialness to them, not because they were powerful, not because they were better than any other nation, not for any other reason than God himself is good. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord said this through Moses saying, For you are a people, Israel, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples but it is because the Lord loves you And is keeping the oath, he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him he will repay him to his face. If we want to be saved, whether we are Jewish or whether we are Gentile, we are all saved in the same way by the grace of God as we repent and place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, the time to repent is now. See what John said to the religious leaders next in verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, meaning judgment is near. Nearer today than ever before, the divine axeman has gripped the handle of the ax. He is maneuvering his fingers into their correct positions on the handle. And he has placed the sharper side of the ax head to the root and he is ready to begin swinging. And the axeman has certain trees in his sights as John reveals in verse 10. Every tree Therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree, meaning every person, whether Jew or Gentile, must turn from sin to the Lord in faith and repentance. There is an emphasis here on the individual tree, meaning there are no exceptions. Every single tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You must turn to the Lord as an individual it is you who will stand before the Lord and must give an account and the only way to escape that day is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and this cuts against the grain of what much of what we've called evangelicalism for the last 50 years we've been so focused on getting people to pray the sinner's prayer as though it were some sort of magic formula for salvation And tent revivals and crusades reveal the multitudes of people that end up praying the sinner's prayer when they hand in their numbers. Fifty people prayed the sinner's prayer, but they never follow up to see if that confession is a true confession. And how can we know whether it's a true confession? By the internal change brought about by the Holy Spirit. As the person who made the confession bears the fruit of obedience to the will and the ways of Jesus Christ, their Savior, their Redeemer, their Messiah, who saves them from the penalty of sin and is at this very moment preparing a place for them from which He will one day return to gather us up to be with Him where He is and who obey Him as Lord and King." It's common and popular in church today to separate these two things. To think that we can just kind of grasp onto Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. That we can kind of receive salvation. We can take that ticket. We can put it in our pocket and continue living our hypocritical, unfruitful lives without any reference to Jesus Christ at all. But John the Baptist here shoots that idea in the foot. Every tree, he says, that does not bear good fruit as the result of a true Repentance is cut down and thrown into the fire. John then, John then, in order to make it clear that he is not the one in whom they are to put their trust, continues on, saying that he himself is not the Savior. He is not the one in whom they should put their faith after repenting. Instead, he is the one who prepares the way for the Lord, in verse 11, saying, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, John's baptism is a preparatory baptism. We are told at the beginning of this section, right, in verse 3, that he is the one who prepares the way for the Lord by saying, Make his path straight. He does this by calling on the people to repent, calling on them to turn from their sin. But the one who is coming after him is of such value, is of such worth, is of such dignity, The one, he is one whose sandals John is not worthy to carry. Now you gotta know that carrying another's sandals in this day and in this place was a most menial and humiliating act of service to another. And your average respectable Jewish person would never, unless they were a slave carry another's sandals and here is John prophet spokesman for the Lord telling people that the one who is coming he is nothing in comparison John is nothing in comparison to him who is coming he is nothing in comparison to the king and when the king comes he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire now there are some who want to make this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire into some sort of special charismatic baptism reserved for and dispensed upon a few Christians. But I just want you to know that is a complete misrepresentation of what John is talking about here. The baptism he refers to here is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God changing our hearts. And this baptism is conferred upon all believers when they believe. This transformation is worked by the Spirit in all who truly trust Christ at the point of salvation. It is not the creation of a second higher class of Christians. We are all who truly believe in Christ, baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is what is spoken of by the Apostle Paul in his letter to Titus, chapter 3, when he said, the goodness, When the goodness and the loving kindness of our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen and amen. So again, if anyone hopes to be saved, if anyone hopes to be forgiven by the Lord, if we hope to spend an eternity with the Lord in the most joyful experience that we could ever have, we must turn to Jesus in faith. Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. And he made this clear. Jesus made this clear. In John 14, 6, super clear. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So the call is believe in Jesus, trust Jesus, run to him for the freedom of forgiveness, and you will be saved. And to be clear, once again, you are not saved by your works. You are saved completely and totally by God's grace through faith, trust, and belief in Christ. The good works are a byproduct of true and saving faith. The good fruit, the authentication of a real trust, a real baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the offer is open to anyone here this morning. Would you believe in Jesus? Would you trust in Jesus? Would you come to Jesus Christ in faith? If not then there is something else you need to know, something else we must hear as John closes up this section in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John uses the imagery here of a wheat farmer to describe both a terrifying and a wonderful truth. You see, at this point, in both the world and the church, the wheat, which here represents God's people, and the chaff, which portray the wicked, the unrepentant, all who reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the saved and the unsaved, are mixed together on the the great threshing floor. Both the truly saved and the unsaved comprise the visible church throughout the world. And there are many who claim to love Jesus, but who do not are instead chaff and the same is true in the world the wheat and chaff are mixed together as we live and as we move throughout both church and world but god in his wonderful patient patience holds back his wrath he restrains his holy righteous anger against sinful conduct in order to give humanity the opportunity to repent His long-suffering patience is a kindness given to us. However, his restraint and his patience will one day come to an end. And Christ himself will return in the future and separate the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat he will gather up and he will take into his barn, meaning that his people will be gathered up by him and taken care of. They will be given everything that they were promised eternal life of blessedness with the Lord, while the chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire. And this day of judgment that is in the future has been long prophesied throughout Scripture. The Lord, for example, through Malachi, said this, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Ultimately, the future of every single human being, of every single tree, of every individual, is one of two things. Wheat headed for the barn, or believers who have turned to Jesus in faith, that have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, destined for an eternity of joy and happiness in the presence of the Lord, that is one future end result, or the other, chaff destined to be burned with unquenchable fire, or the wicked unrepentant sinner who rejects the offer of grace that has been held that is held out to them right now in and by Jesus Christ all who reject Jesus Christ will suffer this fate so in closing the question goes out to you are you wheat or are you chaff if you are chaff don't you want to be wheat You can be. If you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, if you look to Jesus Christ for salvation, listen, Jesus loves to forgive sinners. He loves to forgive sinners. And if you are wheat this morning, all glory be to Christ because your future is secure There is coming a day when Jesus will gather you up into his barn and you will be given all of the promises that he has made to you and is that not a wonderful hope to hold during these trying times? All glory be to our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for uh, the wisdom and the message that you have given to us through John the Baptist and we thank you for the grace of holding out to us the truth of our eternal state apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And while many in the world might think it's offensive and might think it's harsh, we know that you painting these pictures for us through your prophets and painting these pictures for us in, by, by the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ is actually a grace that you give to us. No one can ever say that you weren't absolutely clear about our future if we continue to reject our Lord Jesus Christ. And no one can say that you were unclear about the eternal blessedness and joy of an eternity with you upon receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So I pray right now that the clarity of John's message would ring true in our souls and that if we are chaff, that we would come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith so that we can become wheat. And if we are wheat, I pray that you would help us to rejoice over that fact, rejoice over the fact that you have saved us in, through, and by Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to rest on that foundation and rest in the hope of our eternal blessedness with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.